I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 65 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. The first ever IVF baby turns 40 today. Her name is Louise Brown. How lovely. Happy birthday, Louise. I'm going to do something new here. I'm going to give you my hero, my icon and my Wally of the week. Am I all of them? (laughs) (laughs) This is a way of just publicly praising me. Tell me who they are. My hero of this week is Amelia Holden, a 21-year-old American pizza waitress who body slammed a man who groped her when he walked past. The surveillance footage has gone viral and it's amazing. It's really instinctive. My icon of the week is Dennis Quaid, who appeared naked on a balcony, while he's wearing a dressing gown, in a face mask, smoking a fag. Dolly, he is your spirit animal. I've seen the picture and it is a look I have rocked before. It's quite inspirational. Yeah. And my Wally of the week is Elon Musk, who stole a picture of a farting unicorn from illustrator Tom Edwards to use in his Tesla electric cars. They have now settled. A farting unicorn. The headlines are epic. Elon Musk's farting unicorn fight settled, wrote the BBC. (laughs) Do you have anything in ye old mailbag this week? We had a great email in the mailbag this week from a listener called Jessica Veens recommending a mentorship scheme called Girls Network for young women that I'd like to talk about because I think it sounds brilliant and I'm sure loads of our listeners would like to get involved. The Girls Network draws on female role models to ensure bright futures are not subject to background, gender or parental income. Only 33% of girls spoken to in 2014 felt positively about themselves and their futures. At 16, half of girls from the poorest homes received no GCSE passes above grade D. The Girls Network programme is underpinned by research showing that conversations and personal relationships can have a big impact on challenging stereotypes and expectations. So it was started by two secondary school teachers called Charlie Young and Becca Dean, and they decided to act on this data by setting up a scheme where mentors with experience of the workplace meet regularly with the girls over the course of a year, exploring career opportunities and developing their skills and providing them with support to achieve their goals through education and beyond. The Girls Network is now working with over 1,200 girls per year across London, Greater Manchester, West Midlands, Liverpool, Newcastle, Portsmouth and Brighton. And 100% of the girls on the programme last year reported feeling more confident in, in themselves and in how to get where they want to go. I just think it's such an important and brilliant scheme. A close friend of mine is a state secondary school teacher and she always is saying that the biggest issue that she sees amongst young girls is a lack of confidence and I also think it seems to give great access to contacts and a ready-made network to young women who may not otherwise have easy access to that so we will include details to the scheme in the show notes which will take to the website telling you how to donate get involved 
or become a mentor. It reminds me of what Elizabeth was saying in our episode last week about how sponsorship is much more important than mentorship as you need someone to sort of actually physically pull you through the ranks rather than just giving you quite abstract advice. Yeah. That sounds really good. What have you been enjoying this week, Doll? I enjoyed Marisa Bates' uh, open letter on the pool to her best friend who is getting married next month, who incidentally is also our friend and features editor of Red, the lovely Tash Lunn. And it made me absolutely sob as I read it because it was so beautifully written and deeply personal and managed to capture the long history and future and intimacy and respect and loyalty and commitment um, that can be a close female friendship, which, as you probably know, because I've bloody wanged on about it so much, is something that's very close to my heart. I was about to say, you're not really interested in female friends. <laughs> you don't have any female friends, do you? No, don't like them. <laughs> Only trust men. Drama queens, the too bitchy. Uh, anyway, here's a quote from its final segment that I found very moving. Don't ever stop sending me pictures of a young Barack Obama. I will always want to see them. Don't forget that even good things can be hard, but you mustn't be ashamed if and when they get hard. We both know people are lying when they say things are perfect all the time. And when they get hard and you like him a bit less that day or week, we can always go to the coast and walk and eat Pizza Express and read the papers in dressing gowns like we did that time. Do you know that seeing your best friend happy with a kind and good man outweighs selfish demands for dinner dates and long brunches? Don't forget... Oh, it's going to make me cry. Oh, I'm actually going to cry. Don't forget that I was with you the morning you met him, with you the night before he proposed. And that will always be with you one way or another. Do you know that this letter is wrapped in hope and love? Do you look forward with anticipation and excitement for the magical adventure that is about to happen? And sometimes in a quiet moment, don't forget to look back. Emotion in the studio. <laughs> Very I rare. Was clenching my paws, hoping you'd managed to get through it. I was like, is she going to go? <laughs> Don't you think that's you very beautiful? I, 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 I read it, actually. It, um, it is a really lovely piece. The great thing about those two being best friends is they're both writers, so they can romance each other through public letters. Yeah, Tasha, I hope you've been a clever girl and cribbed that for your wedding speech. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I love that. And I love these conversations um, that are happening around female friendship more. It just feels like this is a time where people are kind of respecting them and taking them seriously and celebrating them but also just because i don't think it's actually in that um extract but it would be really boring if people did that age-old thing of just taking that extract as um synonymous with the whole piece she says you know thank you for ignoring me when i sort of heckle about marriage Mm. this is not like an ode to losing your friend because they've got married it's it's an ode of friendship which happens to include the fact that she's found a man that loves her after having had like a lot of frogs so it's very kind of like um, modern and self-aware in that yeah, totally. in that regard it's absolutely not like well you've won darling bye-bye no <laughs> and it's it's about how what, even though their lives might be a little bit different now that the two of them and their relationship can stay the same and also I just think it's so much nicer than you know when you go to those like Hindus and a girl stands up to do like a poem and they're like Tash tea is for tantalizing a it's, it's for, for ass it's for amazing <laughs> What hens have you been to? That was cycle one. (laughs) That was round one. Anyway, thank you, Marisa, for making me cry. And good luck with your marriage, Tash. Um, (laughs) That sounded bitter. I don't know why. That didn't mean to sound bitter. I also listened to Viv Albertine on Fresh Air. Fresh Air is a brilliant show, American show, which I talked about before. I really enjoyed Tracy Thorne's episode a few weeks ago, which I talked about. So Terry Gross seems to be getting on these 
English rock chicks that she loves. Uh, she did Greta Gerwig around the whole kind of Woody Allen time, didn't yes, she? Yes, and she didn't shy away from difficult mm-hmm. questions. She's a... Uh, She's very journalistic. She also just has that one of those kind of Kirsty Young voices, voices that yeah. I could just listen to forever. She's a really kind of relaxed and warm interviewer while uh, also pushing for incisive answers. In the interview, Viv Albertine talked about her first memoir and talked about um, punk and being in a punk band in the 70s and the aggression that they faced. Uh, she talks about freeing herself up from romantic attachment, which is something that she talks about in her uh, second book, to, to Throw Away Unopened, and why she's kind of given up men forever. And she goes on quite a polemic rant, actually. It's, it was, it's quite uncomfortable to listen to, but it's very impassioned about why she kind of hates men and <laughs> why she's so happy she never has to have a boyfriend again. And again, Terry Gross probes her on that and kind of presents another argument uh, for that. It's just a really interesting conversation. Uh, she also talks about, and she talks about this into Throwaway Unopened as well, about how she believes she's on the autistic spectrum and why that goes so undiagnosed apparently in women is because women are so conditioned to accommodate and um, to make people feel comfortable that female autism is often undiagnosed because they're concealing it interesting which is so interesting isn't it yeah but the extract that i wanted to play and i hope this isn't uh this doesn't seem too sad it's an extract about her cancer and how she felt after she'd survived cancer um because i think that we're often only fed one narrative of kind of cancer survival which is triumphant and joyful um, and life starting again and having a new kind of zeal for existence. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people that isn't the case and it it changes you and leaves a thumbprint on your life forever and even though yeah it is sad to listen to I've never heard someone articulate it quite in this way. The aftershock. Mm. To face the spectre of death on your own at night, there's no other feeling like it. It's it's the most alone you'll ever feel. Um, and people say after cancer, you, you know, you come back fighting and you come back grabbing every moment as if, you know, you've got no tomorrow and it gives you this courage. It didn't do that to me. I suddenly felt all my courage taken away from me and um, it probably took a good 10 years to gradually build it back up and I wasn't the same person. I, I built a different person, a more circumspect, a more compassionate person, but certainly not the daredevil I was before. Pandora, what have you been crying about this week and enjoying? No tears, but I read the debut novel by the Guardian journalist uh, Hermione Hobie called Neon Daylight, which has had rave reviews. It's the story of a girl named Kate who's sort of having a bit of a crisis of life and age 25 goes to New York for a summer to cat sit um, while her mother's you know best friend is away and she falls kind of simultaneously in lust with a father and his daughter but it's the kind of depictions of New York in the summer that I think has really beguiled people and I think that you'd really like that kind of stultifying um, steamy sort of hedonistic kind of almost quite sexually charged reverie the the static of it all um 
And obviously being a journalist, she talks about her book so lyrically. And actually, again, as a journalist, what I love the most about when I watch something or when I read something is seeing what other people have written about it, Mm. the writing about the words. Mm. And there is an interview between Hermione and the novelist Emma Klein, who wrote, wrote The Girls, which was published in the Paris Review. And that's just a really interesting interview, um, even if you haven't read the book, about kind of writing and womanhood, really, and and city life, because everyone has, um, I think, as Hermione says, like more than any other city in the world, New York is written about and it's rewritten. It's so overlaid with other people's interpretations of it. Mm. So that was a good read. That was uh, Neon Daylight. I'm taking that on holiday with me next month. Ah, so you already have it. I'm even more excited to read it. Yeah. I have also been watching Picnic at Hanging Rock. Have you seen this? No. It's a remake of the 1975 film and it's on BBC Two at the moment. I think you'd really like it. It's starring Natalie Dormer as the um, headmistress and it's basically a finishing school in Australia. Oh, cool. And something really creepy happens. I've only watched one episode, but I think it's going to do really well and it's got a lot of young female leads that I think we'll go on to see in other things. But I love anything set in that kind of virgin suicides setting of kind of an innocence lost, that creepy sort of finishing school, Mm. boarding school, (laughs) anything like that. And when is it set? It's Victorian, so the costumes are all really amazing. Oh, that's good, because I need a new Pezzadee. Because I've, <laughs> I've just ran to the end of the Dorrells. What's a Pezzadee? Period drama. <laughs> oh, my God. Hannah Betts wrote an absolutely brilliant piece for the Times magazine. Oh, on... loved that piece. I was about to say, you would love it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's basically about how Hannah, a 47-year-old journalist and eternal singleton, quote-unquote, because those two words are always um, placed next to each other, fell in love. But it's really thoughtful and self-aware and so well-written. I keep thinking about it this whole week. Because it actually um, spoke really lyrically and movingly about the loss of her parents as well. Mm. You got so much from that, from that piece. She's really cautious not to describe her relationship in princess terms. Like, there's no sort of Terence saved me from myself type thing. Indeed, she still champions her single life. It's just that she's living a life different to the one she's living now. It is notoriously difficult to talk about being happy without sounding like an asshole. she writes. All I know is I now go a tad loopy if I don't see him for a while, needing the rhythm of bed sharing to set me right. He's the first person whose hand mine hasn't snaked out of, with the shameful result that it now feels unnatural walking alongside him without it. Good as it would have been to have more than a couple of decades together, I would not have had us meet one moment sooner than 43, me, and 40, him. Our culture fetishises young love, yet young love is a nightmare. Old love, rather brilliant. You're older, wiser, the fight gone out of you. The only way in which being exhausted is a plus. You value what you have, knowing precisely how rare it is, this calm, considered, still more epic thing. And then she writes shortly after, I adored my single days. They made me who I am, even if I now gaze myopically back at them over a Rubicon of surveyors' reports and sleepless grief. Never for one moment did I view them as a retardation, nor am I inclined to smug coupledom now. Being conjoined brings its own challenges, even when one is yoked to a hot saint. It's such a lovely piece. I keep talking to people about it as well, and I also... Do you? Yeah, I do. I was talking about it to a friend at dinner last night because I I love the idea that she says in it, because she is gorgeous and so clever and and such a lovely woman, it seems, and he is 
a catch. He is, as she says, a hot sex. Yeah. He's topless on the front cover of the Times They're magazine. They're both gorgeous and they both seem just like a lovely couple. And the sense that I got from it is that this was a man worth waiting for. And that wait indeed didn't even really exist because she wasn't, she was away living her life, as was he. They both had these wonderful careers and had these great experiences and met each other at exactly the right time and how happy they were that they didn't settle for anything else. And that's a really hopeful story, I think. I think the problem with our narratives on love is that they are all really structured around the idea of a sell-by date and that's that's totally linked to your biological clock. Yeah. But there are women that don't want children. Yeah, Hannah plenty. is one of them. Yeah. And so, you know, six months into their relationship, people were saying, like, are you going to pop a sprog? Um, so I think the perspective which from which she's writing is really powerful because... Um, she never felt like she was still on the shelf because mm. it seems for her she wasn't motivated by children or at least is no longer motivated by children. So when this relationship came along, she was able to enjoy it without that pressure. And I think sadly for a lot of women, they meet someone in their 40s, it, do- it does have that pressure. Yeah. Because if you do want children, it does get harder. And I yeah. think it was nice to read a love story, which it was, without it being yoked to that merely yoked to uh, the hot saint terence and also hot saint terence also i think it ties back to that matthew paris piece that we read a couple mm. of months back where they both their resounding thing is my life with this person as wonderful as it is and as different as it is isn't better it's just different to a life single and i think that the more people can share those stories and the more we can destigmatize the state of singledom, the better. She was really interesting as well, I think, about the fetishization of singledom. You know, she she attacked both um, cliches mm. and saying, you know, I was naturally much more social when I'm single because single life is, is a sociable affair. And reading it, I was really reminded of some of the conversations I've had with you and I've yeah. been like, God, I'm stuck at the home with the baby and you're out, you know, doing whizzy literary things and you being like, because our lives are very different right now. Yeah. That and, and I think it's really, it, it was good to read it from that perspective yeah. as well, because yeah. I think sometimes you can feel like everyone's being a sort of Carrie Bradshaw off buying like Manolo Blahniks and going to clubs called Bed. But actually, <laughs> as, she, as she says, it can get really tiring. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with a club called Bed. <laughs> Look at me. I'm knackered. Give me a baby and a husband. <laughs> Makeup looks nice though. Ah, thank you. Um, another really interesting piece I read this week is on Natural Cycle, the birth control app. Have oh, you got yeah. friends using that? I haven't. Those ads are targeted at me everywhere. Though. I know. Well, that's that's kind of ethically problematic in itself. Should you be able to do paid for posts when it comes to contraception? I read the piece with keen interest as I know more than one baby conceived whilst using the Natural Cycle app. Really? It's a piece written for The Guardian magazine by the writer Olivia Sudic where she explains how she was drawn to a digital contraception after years of hormonal anxiety brought on by the pill. It's something I hear a lot of women really kind of struggle with. Mm. Natural Cycle, for those not familiar, it is the brainchild of two Scandi physicists and it operates a preventative method based on your temperature. You take your temperature every day when you wake up and if it says yes, you're free to shag or no, you'll get pregnant if you shag today. It's literally as simple as that, but it doesn't use the word shag to my knowledge. It's (laughs) £60 a year and it's got over 700,000 users globally with 125,000 of them in the UK. And Olivia started using it and then she got pregnant. 
I felt colossally mm. naive, she said, until she interviewed myriad other women who have also got pregnant whilst using the app to prevent pregnancy. It's a very interesting piece about femtech. That stands for female technology and why we should exercise caution when trusting it. Mm. The most revealing bit is where Olivia finds an interview with the co-founders from 2016 where they revealed that the app should be used by people who want to start trying for children in the imminent future. So they want to come off the coil or the pill or Mm. um, the implant and give their body kind of time to reset because it can take a while to get your fertility back. And so they would use natural cycle. The idea being that they hope not to get pregnant, but if they did it's okay because they want a baby otherwise. Yeah, so, so it's more a device of managing a plan for conception rather than preventing it full stop. But that's not how it's been marketed. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's not how I've seen it being marketed. I've seen it being marketed like contraception. Well, indeed, Olivia writes, on the section of the Natural Cycles website aimed at medical professionals, there is a decision tree for doctors considering prescribing the app as birth control. Is the patient over 18? Is she satisfied with her current birth control? If the answers to those questions are yes and no, then the third is, would she be devastated to get pregnant within the next year? If the answer is yes, the doctor is told not to prescribe the app. Perhaps, says Olivia, those questions should be compulsory when you click through on a natural cycle link. I just think this is an incredibly important piece to flag because I see the paid posts and I hear friends, indeed I have in the last week, having actual discussions about whether to use the app as contraception. And I get it. I get that we all hate that the risk is one carried by our own bodies, bodies that equally we don't want a pump full of hormones and moods, but it's just not good enough yet. I think this Mm. is a real example that femtech is not where it should be if you're considering it to be contraception, especially when the variables, like how much you drank, how much sleep you got, what temperature your room is, how stressed you are, Mm. um, how well you are, if you have a cold, they are so variable Mm. in a young woman. So even that makes it kind of, quite dicey but I think it's just a really important informative piece Mm. Mm. so I'd very much recommend that to anyone thinking of natural cycle and lastly something that very much titillated me and I believe will titillate any millennial a Q&A with All Saints who are reforming in the Observer magazine about why they were different from the Spice Girls what it was like going on CD UK hungover and how they feel about being the patron saints of combat trousers oh how funny the early days were sort of like being at uni says Mel you fuck about you do a little bit of work but you mainly fuck about we spent a lot of time doing that Top of the Pops was our common room and then that oh, says oh I love that we had a lot of fun with NSYNC they were lovely boys then there was Aqua Savage Garden Ocean Colour Scene there's a pause as memories float to the surface. Sean Maguire laughs Mel as everyone else tries to remember the name of the ex-Eastenders musical output. What a legend, she adds. <laughs> it's just <laughs> heaven. Um, All Saints as well, I think, is such a cultural touchstone for a millennial woman. My friend Ed said to me once, I think he came around for a dinner at my house and we got to a point in the evening where we drank enough wine to put on Never Ever. And all of us stood up and knew every single word and we were sort of shouting it from the top of our lungs and Ed just, I think, was the only man at the dinner party just sat watching. He was like, there's very much a, a woman of a certain age who reacts to a very to this song in a very specific way. <laughs> it's now time for The Top Line, read by Pandora. Yeah. A group of MPs have proposed a ban on fur after it was revealed that fur is often sold as faux fur. The Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee, known as EFRA, have revealed that high street and online retailers, including TK Maxx, 
Boohoo.com, Amazon and Tesco's have recently sold real fur as fake. A famous plastic surgeon known as Dr. Bum Bum has gone on the run in Brazil after a woman died following a bottom enlargement. Dr. Dennis Furtado, known for his before and after Instagram shots, was arrested in Rio following the death of Lillian Calixto, a 46-year-old bank manager. Britain's youngest convicted terrorist, who was behind a plot to behead police officers in 2015, has begun a legal bid to change his identity when he is released from prison in 2020. During the trial, the then 14-year-old was referred to simply as RXG. If his bid is accepted, he will join just six others, including James Bulger murderers John Venables and Robert Thompson and Maxine Carr, who legally assumed new identities. Fifteen people were shot dead in Toronto after 29-year-old Faisal Hussein opened fire on Sunday night in Greektown. Now dead himself, Hussein suffered from severe mental health issues. A family were forced to cancel their holiday to Mallorca after their dog ate their passports. Bailey, a cocker spaniel, chewed the passports so badly that Ella and Russell Mack were forced to cancel their all-inclusive holiday to Spain with their three children. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is returning 15 years after the series finished. Sarah Michelle Gellar will not be returning to the role. Instead, the reboot will feature an African-American lead. Like our world, it will be richly diverse, and like the original, some aspects of the series could be seen as metaphors for issues facing us today, producers on the project told Deadline. A woman who says her marriage is unhappy has lost a Supreme Court appeal to be granted a divorce. Tiny Owens, 68, from Worcestershire, wanted the court to grant her a divorce from her 80-year-old husband, Hugh, of 40 years, who is refusing the split. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected the appeal, meaning she must remain married until 2020. Lord Wilson said the case was dismissed with reluctance and that it was a question for Parliament. We may need driving licences to drive in the EU after a no-deal Brexit. The licences are estimated to cost £5.50 each, with up to 7 million Britons applying for one. Greece has declared a state of emergency as wildfires in the Attica region kill 74 people, with the death toll still rising. The fires which surround Athens are the worst since 2007. Greek Interior Minister Panos Skolitis described the wildfires as a biblical disaster with human losses. People are getting less than half the sun protection they expect from suntan lotions, according to research. But the problem isn't the lotion, it's our slapdash application of it, King's College London scientists say. Factor 50 lotion applied in the typical way would, at best, provide 40% of the expected protection. The research showed that you should apply at least six full teaspoons to cover the body of an average adult. And that was The Top Line. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. this topic a little later than we would have liked but like Ryanair we got there in the end despite substantial delays that's an intentional pun because we're going to talk about 
Plain Bay. For those unfamiliar with the vignette gone viral, Plain Bay tells the story of two people who met on a flight from New York City to Dallas as observed by another passenger named Rosie Blair and live tweeted by Rosie with over 50 tweets over the course of the flight. Having overheard that the pair were both vegetarian fitness trainers, Rosie tweeted, I hope they get to fall in love. She listens to their conversations and snaps pictures of the pair, overlaying the images with text and uploading them to Twitter. Rosie's tweets quickly gathered momentum. Her initial tweet garnered more than 300,000 retweets. Yes, 300,000. And the pair were soon ousted on arrival in Dallas as a woman named Helen and a man named Ewan. Ewan, aka Plain Bay in memeology, was a former soccer player and happy to be interviewed by the Today Show. He shared a picture of himself smiling and topless to Instagram with the caption, sat here thinking about how different the day would have been if I missed my flight. Helen, conversely, has withheld her surname and felt quite differently. In fact, she issued a statement through her lawyer. Plain Bay is not a romance. It is a digital age cautionary tale about privacy, identity, ethics and consent. Please continue to respect my privacy and my desire to remain anonymous. What do you make of this digital age cautionary tale, doll? I think it's such an interesting one because Plain Bay is 100% the sort of thing that I would tweet about. Mm. People use social media for different things. And one of the ways that, well, kind of the only way now that I use it, particularly with Twitter, other than boring, endless streams of self-promotion, is to tell stories about harassing ASOS. (laughs) because of a missed parcel, um, is using it to tell stories about things I see around me that I find funny or profound or moving. And I often will see humans interact or behave in a way that I want Mm. to document or share with people online. And I often do, be that on the bus or in a restaurant or, you know, out and about. And I think that's totally fine. I love seeing those stories told well on Twitter threads. I think they say a lot about humanity when they're done well. And I often think they really make people laugh or warm people's hearts, which is something Twitter really needs as much as possible to kind of temper all the other stuff. But fundamentally, I do believe that you can only tell those stories without consent if you're concealing the person's identity. It has to be told as abstract mythology rather than journalistic documentation. I think there are a few fundamentally riveting issues at play here. Firstly, that in the digital age in which we live now, taking someone's picture and sharing it to the internet without their consent or their permission can be considered a type of assault. Voyeurs have come looking for me online and in the real world, um, Helen Helen said in her statement. And secondly, it is how differently the man and woman have responded and been treated by plain bay Mm. ewan is so fond of his new moniker that he has included it in his instagram bio which now has over a hundred thousand followers and features shots of him modeling smiling constantly referencing the fact that he is plain bay meanwhile helen has said in her statement i have been doxxed shamed insulted and harassed that speaks volumes about misogyny on the internet i think yeah totally and also i think it shows that it's the same reason like when cosmo and i were doing the dating column i never had a problem finding a man to be written about they all wanted to be written about but Cosmo really struggled to find women to be written about and I think it's because women know that once they're in the public sphere the risk of all the things that could happen to them and the way that they can be spoken about and the way that they can be shamed and the way that they can be torn apart is so much higher than if you're a man I get it if you're a guy I think I'd go for it it'd be fun it's just you know a bit of quick fame but I think it comes with such a higher price for a woman which this poor woman Helen obviously is aware of the response to Plain Bay has been huge like Cat Person it's captured a cultural conversation 
Cannot stop thinking about how creepy the viral thread about the couple on the plane is, wrote Chelsea Fagan. It's unreal how the internet has poisoned our brains and concept of basic privacy. My reaction to that apparently beloved viral plane romance tweet story makes me think that my expectations for privacy are wholly out of line with everything else, observed a user named Tom and Lorenzo. And this is one of many instances that challenge our sense of boundaries, of privacy and of interpersonal ethics in a digital age. And the mediation of the internet blurs our sense of what's real and what isn't to a point where solid answers are hard to come by, writes Catherine Cross. In its way, the story was charming and adorably framed, but it concerns me that people who assume it's real see no ethical issues here. What if it was you? The best thing I read in response to the tweet story was via The Atlantic, who published a brilliant story by Megan Garber about how nothing, not even delight, is safe from the commodification of American culture. The impulse to memify is understandable, of course, and very, very human. We are social. We are nosy. We love to hear and tell stories about each other. But, as Megan writes, the dynamics of microfame then took over. As viewers got invested in the saga of hashtag Plain Bay, they also began in their own small ways laying claim to it. Media outlets started writing about it. Ryan Seacrest joked about it. USA Today reported with the urgent tones of breaking news that Ewan is the brother of Stu Holden, the former United States soccer player and current World Cup commentator. The story of the maybe couple's lofty meet-cute had slipped the surly bonds of mirth. It had ceased to be a simple, airy delight. It had instead become a heavy-handed media product, with ads sold against it, and eyeballs meant to cling to it, and hashtag plain bay truthers attempting to puncture it. It had become content. It had become a commodity. So good. So good. That, so that, well that modern drive for hashtag content. People have compared Plain Bay to the Greta Gerwig story, which was when someone named Jay Hunt on Twitter live tweeted Greta's negative response to Amy Schumer's movie, I Feel Pretty. At full volume during the movie, Greta, this is from the observing Jay Hunt, allegedly boomed, this is incomprehensible about the movie. I have to say I did love that thread on Twitter, but I did feel a bit uncomfortable about loving it because I, I did feel it was robbing Greta Gerwig of a private experience the difference is I suppose Greta Gerwig is famous and so perhaps she should be aware of how she behaves in public particularly when it comes to speaking very loudly about a peer's work in a derogatory way whereas with these two people they would never have anticipated they have an obligation to keep their interaction furtive or discreet neither do they benefit from fame in the same way that Greta does so it's not like here are your pros and this is one of your cons yeah it isn't a trade-off that they've willingly participated in or even been made cognizant of I thought Busy Phillips who's an actor in I Feel Pretty had a great attitude to the Greta Gerwig tale she recorded a video for Instagram in response and she said guys did you see this woman that live tweeted Greta watching I Feel Pretty I mean she's pretty fucking mean about the movie but that's not my issue necessarily what strikes me is that we're just like everyone exists for my own personal lols it's just bummed me out on such a deeply personal level for a few reasons it's the idea that if you were in the public eye in whatever capacity that you are giving up your autonomy and your privacy anywhere that you can't even go to a movie theatre I thought that was a really cool and thoughtful mm. response especially given that Greta and Busy are actually friends yes because just because she's famous does that mean she's not allowed to have a communal viewing experience and express herself 
out of fear of being recorded? Or is that the exchange you agree when you're famous? I mean, just imagine the prison of paranoia that would that would trap you in. I think it's because she's on a certain cusp of famosity. Mm. Like Justin Bieber would never go to a movie theatre, a public movie theatre, and heckle Loudly. a screen. Yeah. Because, of course, you run the risk of this happening. I think Greta didn't realise that she has kind of segued from indie fame into mainstream, mainstream. That's very fame. true. But can you imagine? You just never want to get drunk again. I'm, I very, very, very rarely get recognised because I have no reason to be recognised. But the first time it happened um, after my book was published was under the garish lights, the sort of arch of Camden Town Station a few months ago, around midnight, having just been to a gig, holding the majority of a bottle of white wine in a plastic pint glass, sipping from it and swaying from side to side, uh, when a girl came up to me to say that she'd read the book. And I was barely able to say thank you without slurring. And my friend Lauren... <laughs> was there and she said thank god your personal brand sort of quite heavily involves white wine from a plastic pint glass on the streets of Camden because that could have been very embarrassing for you otherwise it would have been more embarrassing if we'd seen you in a box at the polo that that just <laughs> resonated I think with what people would have read about you and it's not that rare Hannah don't be modest anyway back to plain bay because Dolly this segment isn't about you I also think that plain bay makes a point about the emphasis we put on romance I understand Rosie's excitement of observing a romance at near distant that she thought she played a sort of integral role in and that Mm. whole sliding doors element of serendipity you know if she hadn't switched seats with one of them it would have never happened etc but I do wonder if the technologizing of romance our increasing cultural dependence on dating apps to meet people means that when we see two strangers interacting IRL in a public space because it feels increasingly rare we just lose our proverbial Uh, yeah I think that's a really really good point I can't believe now when I meet couples who've met in real life particularly in somewhere as incidental as a plane or on a journey and it does feel I think now like the most unorthodox and exciting of things and I think we we all have a real appetite for those stories now as you say because they're so they're nostalgic yeah they're nostalgic they're a pezzadie (laughs) Rosie's tweets have now all been deleted and she shared a heartfelt statement of apology where she acknowledged that it may be too late. What was a mere fillip to her flight has been life-changing for the subjects of her storytelling. When I made this and shared it, I was happy, joyful and overcome with authentic and sincere excitement, Rosie writes. So much so that I could not see the potential exploitative nature of the outcome and my actions. The last thing I want to do is to remove agency and autonomy from another woman. I wish I could communicate the shame that I feel in having done this, but I truly feel that at this point my feelings are irrelevant. I think that's a very thoughtful apology and I do think that her mistake is fairly understandable, I think. Uh, And let us not all forget as ever that we are all so, so much more than our worst day on Twitter. Let us refer to John Ronson on public shaming. Yes, my fave. I love him. I think Rosie dealt with her mistake in the best possible way by acknowledging that in her excitement she removed agency from another woman, which is something that the internet does itself every single day because it was not Ewan who was doxxed, it was Rosie. Imagine how differently the narrative would have gone if Ewan said, go away, I feel exploited. And Helen had said, hello, plain bay's me, shared a bikini picture on Instagram and done a boohoo.com collaboration. Look at the way we treated Chloe Ayling who was kidnapped and even after her kidnapper was sentenced to 17 years in prison, society still focused on the fact that she was a bikini model. These are very, very different tales, that of Chloe Ayling and that of Plain Bay, but they reveal not dissimilar truths about women and the digital age. 
Doxing, that's a new one for my octogenarian word bank. Thank you very much, Pandora. Well, for anyone unfamiliar, doxing is the act of identifying someone on the internet with malicious intent. Is there a right way that Rosie could have told this story? Yes, I think there is. Without pictures and with no identifying information? Yeah, yeah. I think that would have been fine. Like you, I frequently tweet about observations I've overheard or people doing or wearing something comical, but no pictures. I think that has to be the given rule now. Yeah. Because otherwise you might give the internet full reign to ruin someone's life. School children as young as four are to be given lessons in mental health, including how to recognise and act on anxiety, depression or distress. Classes on sex and relationships will be compulsory for primary and secondary schools in England from autumn 2020 and will include lessons on mental health. Under the plans, pupils will learn about the risks to mental health and will be helped to develop confidence and resilience. In the news this week, it was revealed that classes would also cover physical health and focus on the importance of exercise and healthy eating as preventative measures to mental health problems. The proposals are being published alongside draft guidance on relationships and sex education. Damien Hines, the Education Secretary, said that good physical and mental health was at the heart of ensuring young people are ready for the adult world. He added, by making health education compulsory, we are giving young people the tools they need to be ready to thrive when they leave school. What do you make of this? story Dolly? I think it's really really positive. I think it's so bizarre that at school we're taught about Fibonacci sequences and igneous rocks but we're not taught about happiness or sadness or confidence or calmness or sense of self and all of these are really important components that help us become functioning responsible cognizant aware compassionate adults fibonacci sequences can i throw in there my own fibonacci sequences which is honeypot traffic jams that's my sole takeaway from 487 years of geography i just don't even what's a honeypot traffic I think jam? it's like congestion around a roundabout i couldn't point to norway on a map but i could still tell you about fucking honeypot traffic jams <laughs> i've also always found it odd that it's not compulsory to teach home economics i didn't learn to cook until my mid-20s i had a pretty terrible attitude to a healthy meal mm. never had an eating disorder but i just eat a bar of chocolate mm. so it was more convenient or how to open a bank account how to manage credit ratings and loans tons of people take out student loans age 18 and wind themselves in complete knots trying to understand repayments and interest I didn't know about credit ratings again until my mid-20s yeah no I mean I still barely know what credit ratings are to be honest and I wish I'd been told at school I think going back to the mental health lessons, I think so much good is being done in the world right now to start the process of destigmatizing mental health, talking about mental health and treatment surrounding mental health. But that can only do so much when it's only in the realm of fully fledged adults. I think to be starting these conversations really young is so, so helpful not just for individuals understanding themselves, but as a collective understanding of others. I remember when I was at secondary school, being called mental or crazy was up there with some of the worst things that you can be called. And I look back now on the girls who were marginalised or mocked, and it's so clear to me now that they were suffering with mental health issues, with depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or a personality disorder. And just, we weren't cruel. I mean, teenagers can be cruel, but it, I think it was more that we did, none of us knew. We didn't have the language for it. We feared it, so we mocked it. Imagine a world where this stuff is as understood amongst young people as when you see a fellow pupil with a physical ailment and the sort of culture of compassion and patience that could therefore be harboured and that we would all carry into our adult life. 
I think there seems to be an unwritten rule that has really kind of prevailed with schooling, and that's been that they're what you learn outside the classroom as as important as inside the classroom. And I do agree with that. You know, you have to read books with your children, take them for cultural activities, have kind of conversations over the over the dinner table about you know current issues and kind mm. of what they feel about it. But I think that you also have to remember that a lot of parents are full time working mums and dads, of or they're course. single parents, yeah. and making sure that they're really kind of understanding and explaining certain things that you know they might not think the onus is on them and having it in that kind of more formalized school setting Mm. you know puts on a real real emphasis to learn I think children are innately empathetic you often read about how children in the classroom react really positively to someone disabled they never verbally question it they don't even discuss it they just sub consciously move to fill their needs but I do think it's much harder for children to understand something you cannot see rather than physical movements. I totally agree and that's why I think this is such a good idea to sort of explain it to children. I anticipate that a response to this new initiative will be children of four are too young to be exposed to the nomenclature of mental health or that perhaps that being exposed to this information will plant a seed in their head that may otherwise not be there. My initial thoughts is, are firstly that we'd have to look at exactly what would be taught and to what age groups. Obviously what you would teach a four-year-old is very different to what you would teach a ten-year-old. Mm. I don't know how effective I think it will be to teach children as young as four, if I'm honest, given how much their sponge-like brains are already soaking up. But I think that no harm can be done introducing kind of happiness and contentment and how are you feeling in your brain today to tiny people and then it might soak in like osmosis until it's time for senior school where it can continue more in earnest with myriad definitions of what to identify and how to recognize signs that you are experiencing mental distress or perhaps those around you are mental health problems in children and adolescents are associated with impaired functioning both academically and socially and it's also linked to substance abuse so it's really important to educate at grassroots mm. level with mm. a focus on resilience and prevention which has a much more positive psychological focus so how to help us cope with adversity and to build up a sort of arsenal of tools rather than focusing on the problems and risks per se so you're addressing it in a slightly different way putting emphasis on the positive rather than yeah. the negative yeah I think arm them with this kind of information as young as you can. Mind now says that one in four people will suffer from mental health issues each year. This is a prolific and serious problem and anything that we can do to help sufferers understand themselves better and crucially help non-sufferers understand how they can support and talk to those who suffer is a good thing particularly from such a young age also as you say i imagine this will be done with an appropriate level of levity and explanation i don't think it will be like those sort of gloomy pshe lessons that you and i had when we were 14 if this is being specifically designed for four-year-olds it will be done in a way that isn't you know fatalistic or nihilistic The only thing, the only slight concern I have when it comes to teachers taking on a more pastoral role, so talking about mental health or, you know, something out of the kind of rigorous academic schedule is that it really depends on the views of the teacher themselves. And, you know, I think aged 11 or 12, you start to realise that teachers are not these kind of genius like Mm. gods you imagine they have to be in the same way that you have that realisation with your parents. And... I do worry that some slightly kind of cloddish teacher could do some quite damaging um, things if not properly educated and not necessarily parlaying the education around mental health in the best way. But I think that's a risk that that, that you have to take. I think the most important part is, is that what is taught in primary school is reinforced at senior school. 
aside from the fact that I wasn't taught sex education, no condom on a banana for me at my Catholic school. We weren't ever taught about mental health. I remember I had a few panic attacks age 11 when I started boarding school, but I didn't recognize what they were. I just used to think that if I cried to a certain point, then I couldn't breathe. And now I'm not reducing mental health issues to me, very privileged, suffering from a panic attack, but I wish I'd known how to identify them and I wish I hadn't felt so alone Mm. through that process. And that's it. I think it's not about sort of being able to put the kibosh on mental health issues, is it? It's about being able to talk about them and it's about being able to manage them. Yeah, and I I don't think it should be taught in this dry academic sort of way. There shouldn't be a designated mental health lesson 20 minutes a week where someone, as you say, Dua comes in and talks about feeling blue. It should be woven through the fabric of the curriculum as much as there should be designated areas. There should be a focus as much on exercise and healthy hot meals as it is on the brain itself, which means that when you're talking about state education, there should be as much public funding, as much of the taxpayers' money going into extra netball and rounders and dance classes and rambling walks for, you know, tiny people as there is on vegetable packed nutritious tasty meals as much as there is on knowing how to read signals from your own brain it should work as a triple pronged mental health triumvirate i think i should write this white paper dolly actually the high low should write it given that the cabinet's in total disarray right now we actually might stand a very real chance of being able to (laughs) interestingly two days after this story was published another story was published about depression in children and specifically antidepressants being prescribed to them. The Times revealed NHS data that showed 70,000 people under the age of 18 and almost 2,000 children of primary school age are currently using antidepressants. Were you surprised to read this, Pandora? I was quite surprised because I think amongst a lot of us Britons there's a real fear of pills. We look to the US who are a nation addicted to uppers and downers like Adderall and Oxycontin and my initial response to that statistic is a, is a great sadness. I'm not a doctor and my opining should not be taken as any kind of fact, but I do have to wonder if every avenue is exhausted before some of those kids were put on antidepressants. Firstly, to nullify any obvious issues like abuse or neglect in the home and then to address their diet and exercise. I suppose the issue for a doctor dealing with a depressed or anxious child is that unlike with an adult where they can, you know, the doctor can say, go swimming three times a week, try reading for an hour before bed, turn your phone off, you know, surround yourself with positive things, etc, etc, and then come back to me. They can't really give any kind of prescriptive guidance to children because children don't have agency. They can only tell the parents, but not all parents listen. So I think with doctors, their hands sort of tied on this and... I also don't know how high those stats are. In isolation, 70,000 sounds like a lot, but then 2,000 doesn't sound like that many. Mm. And especially if I don't know how many children there are, you know, in the UK. I'd also like to know more about the breakdown, how many of those children are middle class and how many are from, you know, very low economic households and so on and so forth. So you can see the kind of variables and the contributing factors. I think we have to be, I think we have to be cynical of of that kind of pill phobia that that you spoke about because, you know, more and more we're opening up a conversation and certainly I know people in my life for whom medication has been essential. In the Times piece that ran, they, they interviewed Andrea Cipriani, a psychiatrist at Oxford University, who is sceptical about the new data and ran his own trials two years ago to investigate the effect of antidepressants on children which found that no antidepressant apart from Prozac was any better than a placebo in treating children and adolescents. God, see how riveting. 
These are very, very high figures, he said. People are prescribing antidepressants to people who don't really need them, who have low mood. It's important people are aware that antidepressants aren't a quick fix. We should be careful of prescribing antidepressants to the developing brain. We don't know the long-term consequences. Now, as a caveat, the reason I'm, I keep caveating this, this is only one professional opinion. This is only one trial, of which there have been many a lot of which prove that medication, as I said, is essential for people's well-being. I just want to say that because I know that this is a flammatory topic and I know that it's very different for different people. Through speaking about Andrea Cipriani and his trials, we are only presenting one side there in terms of research. I think it's very interesting what he says about the developing brain. I do wonder if kids are put on pills age six, will they ever manage to come off them? Will they literally be weaned on antidepressants. It's different in an adult where you've stopped physically and mentally maturing it's at such a rapid and changeable rate. But I I can very much see what Andrea is saying, that there is such a change going on um, in every aspect of, of your body and mind when you're when you're a child. So it's not like a an equal footing mm. your response to that may change. I mean I guess it just has to be really, really tightly managed. Mm. And as I said all avenues are investigated and exhausted first. I spoke to clinical psychologist Dr Lucy Maddox to get her take on these new findings. So why are children being put on antidepressants? So that is a really good question because in fact we don't fully know because we don't have enough extra data. So we know that there's this big increase in use of depression in, in use of antidepressants in both adults and children. And it might be in the case of children that we are encouraging them to speak a bit more about how they're feeling and getting better at diagnosing depression, which would be a really good thing. Yeah. It might also be that depression is increasing, that, that for some reason um, children and young people are more stressed, more anxious and, and lower than they were before, which is also a possibility. And we don't have conclusive evidence to say which of those that is my impression is it's probably a bit of both but that's Mm. my clinical opinion that Mm. perhaps we're getting a bit better at um telling people what depression looks like and and finding out what it is but at the same time perhaps it's also on the rise because our young people are really really stressed i think how severe would a child's depression have to be to put on antidepressants at a primary school age yeah at primary school age that's quite unusual for a child to be on antidepressants and um that would certainly we'd certainly expect that to be for any child actually we'd expect it to be for moderate or severe depression that they are prescribed antidepressants mm. and also that it's in conjunction with a the talking therapy so the nice guidelines which are the kind of um guidelines that say what what we should do for best treatment they say that um antidepressants for children and young people should only be offered with a talking therapy right. um, so they're not not the only solution and also that they're not offered as the first solution for for a mild depression because it's better to to watch and wait and to offer talking interventions that might be helpful um, but for a primary school child who perhaps is really showing signs of very very severe depression or moderate depression um, I think the stats show it's something like 2,000 out of out of the 70,000 um, who, who are primary school age. So it is quite rare for that to happen. And you'd certainly expect a child and adolescent psychiatrist to be involved. So not, not for that just to be a prescription from a GP, but for them to have consulted with or referred to a child and adolescent psychiatrist. 
Are parents advised to tell children the truth about what they're taking? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, in all situations I've worked in where antidepressants have been prescribed by my colleagues, so by psychiatry colleagues to children or young people, there's a lot of work done around explaining to the child themselves Mm -hmm. uh, the pros and cons of that medication, the potential side effects and the potential benefits. And that's really important because it should you know, any decision to give any kind of treatment to a child or young person should be done with as much consent as possible. Mm. And just because a child is under the age of 16 doesn't actually mean that they're unable to consent. They may well be able to understand all the information at their disposal and and make a a decision themselves. So it's really, really important to share information with the child or young person. What effect could being diagnosed with uh, depression and taking antidepressants at a very young age have on a child's sense of identity or sense of self? I think it's really important that any intervention for mental health difficulties is delivered in a way that is as um, least stigmatising as possible. So we don't want to deny an effective treatment because we're trying not to stigmatise something. I think Lucy raised some really interesting points there and um, had a kind of very balanced viewpoint on this news story and in a way kind of offers a counter argument to Dr Cipriani. I think it's very easy to say don't medicalise youth and that statement does have a point. As you mentioned Panda, childhood and particularly adolescence is a time of enormous change physically, mentally, hormonally as we all know. Traditionally it's also a time where you're forming your interior world and your emotional landscape and it's important not to confuse the extreme emotions of rapid development into adulthood with mental health struggles that need medication but I also think what Lucy said about how treatment and medicine is not meant to define a child with depression it's not meant to be a quick fix it's meant to free them up to define themselves with the cloud of poor mental health lifted or at least partially lifted from them yeah and that's the valid counter argument isn't it that children may need to be freed from their own mental shackles in order to grow up that if it's hard to deal with depression as an adult imagine dealing with it as a child when your emotional resources and responses are so naive Mm. and unformed have you had experiences with antidepressants at a young age was mental health something you were rigorously educated on when you were a child we'd love to hear your stories as ever please email the show at gmail.com to share them with us For those of you who are suffering or think you may be suffering from depression or any other mental health issue, please do visit your doctor or log on to mind.org.uk, which supports over half a million people in England and Wales suffering from mental health problems. You can then find your local mind, which includes talking therapies, crisis helplines and drop-in centres in your local area. It's now time for Ask the Hilo. Don, do you want to kick us off with our question for this week? I'm about to move into a new flat with my boyfriend. What is the feminist way to deal with your boyfriend having different standards of cleanliness? (laughs) He leaves banana skins around the apartment and doesn't think clean bedding is important. His clothes are everywhere. I've been very excited about the move and the relationship and I do want to do it. How can I overcome this? I don't want to turn into his mum or do it all by myself, but I can't live with him not changing his habits. Does being a feminist mean I have to live with the banana peel? I've spoken to him about it and he doesn't want to upset me, but doesn't understand why it bothers me. Help! Yours. Concerned. 
oh I love this because it's got nothing to do with feminism but there was just this like overarching like feminist concern and I'm not saying that we're not laughing at you it's just that it shows it doesn't have to be a feminist exactly it shows me so much the anxieties that women feel all the time to be like well what's the feminist take on this he's being a jerk there is no feminist take tell him to pick up the bloody banana peel I also I like the motif offered by the banana skin like like realistically how many bananas can this man be eating so is it like the banana skin becomes this like theme of his like sluttiness using that in the old in the old school sense when also slattern would apply always remember my mum calling me a slut when I was about 13 and and, fe- and like feeling completely appalled until she told me it meant that you had a messy bedroom yeah, yeah. it's one of my favourites I'm, I'm going to call uh, my husband a slut this is the age old concern when you're cohabiting is if you have very different approaches to your living space how not do you just partners as well I think in most couples there's one person that's really tidy and one that's less tidy yeah but same with flat shares often the same with families you know exactly I am anally tidy and actually I'm really lucky Ollie's pretty tidy as well but there's stuff that we naturally do you know I would always move to make the bed and I will always move to put stuff away rather than stack it up on the side yeah but you know he's much more likely to take the bins out and to empty the dishwasher because I can't be fished I think um, I don't think it's got anything to do with feminism and I think like don't don't let it put you off moving in with him no to be honest you might end up doing more of it but there's probably stuff he's better at that he does that you don't so don't worry there's there's like a natural division of labour in a household unless you know you really do live with an asshole and you do absolutely everything on the domestic front which which does still operate in some households particularly ones with a more traditional dynamic mm. but you know don't panic if you spend 10 or 15 minutes more every day doing their tidying I quite like tidying I find it therapeutic if you hate it then let your own standards slide <laughs> I I think it sounds like he must be quite bad. The banana stuff, it's I don't know. I think the the vibe I get from this email is that she's really concerned about that he is very very messy. And I think that two people can live together where one of them is very I don't very... think you can change a messer though. Oh, I think you can. I think you can. I think that what you have to do is say to him, this is not about me being bossy. This is not about me being a control freak. This is about me feeling happy in my home and my home being my sanctuary. And let's find a way that we can meet in the middle. I'm happy to negotiate on this. Let's say we don't have to put everything away. You know, coats don't have to be hung up immediately or whatever. I'd attack the cleanliness. I'd say to him... I will change the sheets every week because I like to have my sheets changed, you know, every seven days. Um, in return, I want you to throw away a banana when you eat it. Like, divide divide up those tasks. The clothes everywhere is annoying, but you could all get a chair. <laughs> Just shove all of his clothes onto mm. the chair so that it's his little messy domain. I think that the cleanliness is, is the bit Cleanliness you want to is the most important, but I think it's also about just making sure that you uh, that you communicate to him because people that aren't naturally super tidy don't understand how it could fuck they you don't off. understand why the panic you can feel in a, in a messy and unclean home exactly. oh I feel panicked and actually I had it with my ex-flatmate who I love dearly but you know she would leave shit everywhere and it did get to a point where I was just like it just makes me feel like I'm in a state of chaos and once I communicated that to her it's like it's so much easier for someone to respect it because they don't think that it's just you being bossy. They understand that it actually has like an impact on how you feel about your home life, which is where we spend a lot of time and where we all deserve to feel safe. So I'd communicate that to him. As Pandora said, 
pick your battles, prioritise what's most important, which definitely has to be cleanliness. Let yourself relax a bit as well, then meet in the middle. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It boosts us in the charts and helps other people find us. You can email us thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye.